0: As sea levels rise, coastal habitats will find it necessary to migrate landwards. But when human-made constructions such as seawalls impede their progress, the habitats are squeezed, resulting in the loss of life-sustaining environments. To lessen those impacts, scientists are developing solutions such as compensatory habitats to preserve affected sea life. Hello, I'm your host Paul T. and in this episode of If-Win, we explore the challenge of coastal squeeze and how it's being mitigated, with Dr. Chrissy Mitchell, National Principal Research Scientist, Flood Coast Reservoirs of the UK Environment Agency, and Dr. Nigel Ponty, Global Practice Leader, Coastal Planning and Engineering at Jacobs. So, Nigel and Chrissy, thank you both so very much for joining me today. Uh, We're going to be talking about coastal squeeze, and it's a a concept and a topic that I recently uh, became familiar with. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I'm I'm looking forward to learning more. And I know we've, we've got two experts here who can really uh, shed some light on what it is, why it matters and what we're doing to uh, mitigate uh, coastal squeeze. And so, Nigel, uh, just to kind of start, start things off, you know, and for our listeners out there who might be similar to me, who you know, coastal squeeze is kind of a new concept. Can you tell us what coastal squeeze is?
1: So our coastlines contain a a range of habitats, uh, such as beaches, sand dunes, and salt marshes. And those habitats are formed of uh, some sediments, mud, sand, gravel, uh, and also some vegetation in some instances that grows in that sediment. Where those habitats occur, uh, the zonation depends on waves and tides and also the sea level. And on natural coastlines, as sea level rises, habitats can migrate further landwards to maintain their same positions uh, relative to the sea, but on coastlines that have been modified, then that landward migration can be slowed or Mm. prevented by man-made interventions like seawalls or key walls for for ports, for example. And Mm. in those settings, when ongoing sea level can result in losses of habitat and those losses uh, due to combination of man-made actions and uh, climate change and sea level rise those losses are called coastal squeeze
0: Mm, mm. so and then chrissy how widespread is the problem of coastal squeeze i mean is it just like just like maybe some of the world's major port areas or is is it more widespread than that like what are we looking at
2: it will be worldwide and it will depend on the sort of geography and morphology and geology of the area and and how much sea level rise is changing in those particular locations. Mm. Uh, I can only talk really uh, on behalf of England, which is, you know, we've got particularly prevalent locations, such as uh, in the east or in the southeast, but uh, that's not to say that other areas, you know, this might become more of a problem as as climate change or, and sea level rise uh, mm-hmm. continues. So, you know, it's, it's fairly widespread you know the estimates of coastal squeeze losses have, have been used to sort of set targets uh, here and and really that's to create sort of new replacement or compensatory habitats uh, around the country so by that i mean that you know once we've assessed them once we understand where they are we, we talk sort of take that land area and and then we we compensate those habitats elsewhere and and we've been really closely working with other organizations here in England uh, such as Natural England, mm-hmm. through a uh, s estuarine coastal monitoring and assessment service and and really to get a really good understanding of, sort of sea level scenarios and the sensitivity to intertidal habitat loss and and by doing that we're constantly refining those estimates of sort of losses and gains you know it's not, it's not all one way, and we get to understand more about uh, coastal squeeze and I guess in particular what we've learned from recent research that is there's no simple one cause of this habitat loss you know and and this will be the same all the way around the world that that these losses that have been observed are are due to multiple causes and and that makes it quite a a, quite a challenge to assess you know just how how big a problem it is so when you ask you know how widespread the problem is Mm -hmm. in england alone there's there's about 250 locations of between 0.1 and one kilometer in length Mm -hmm. where we think closer attention will really benefit the way we manage the coast there
0: Hmm. interesting so one thing i want to pick up on that you said if i understood you correctly now are there efforts to like move habitats move wildlife and like kind of relocate some of those uh the biologies to to other coastlines maybe in england for instance is that is that correct
2: that's exactly that's pretty much it so um uh, wow. if 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 one area is is squeezed where for arguments sake, you know mm-hmm. the entire habitat is lost then we will look you know as part of a scheme or something that happens in that area um we will look to provide or compensate that habitat by building more of it elsewhere
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes interesting okay cool well i think i want to i want to pick back up on that here in just a moment because i think that's that's very fascinating i can imagine those uh those life forms and the, the habitats are very sensitive so I'm sure it's it's very delicate work. Now Chrissy, you recently you have published some research that considers coastal squeeze. Can you tell us a little more about that?
2: Yeah, sure. So this research report was uh commissioned uh under the joint Defra which is our sort of ministry or government here in in England and mm-hmm. the Environment Agency and the Welsh government and the natural resources Wales is an R&D program. So that's where i work and it and it brought together sort of key organisations that alongside those mentioned were you know like natural england and and scotland and marine maritime organisations and it also brought, brought together experts from across schemes where this is already happening and and our rail our network rail and councils and universities and that it brought them all together to try and look at really understanding coastal squeeze and and providing a sort of standard approach so you can find this this research on www.gov.uk and mm-hmm. simply by typing you know coastal squeeze there. And I guess you know what's worth mentioning is that this project was really successful in a number of areas. It was it was led by Jacobs, who you know with Nigel is and and supported by uh, Kenneth Pye Associates, and it provided really clear guidance on which environments coastal squeeze applies to. So we had a really good idea, mm-hmm. but this provides really a good understanding and, and some clear guidance on, on how to actually apply methodologies in, in those areas. And the second part would be the sort of standard, standardising that methodology. So what we were finding across the country was that people were assessing this in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wanted we didn't want to constrain people, but we wanted to be able to provide a good practice, so that they, you know, so that we could have an understanding nationally of how big a, a bigger deal this is. So it, it sounds simple, mm. <laughs> but it's it it it's certainly not. And and this report provides that standard methodology. And then finally, and possibly most importantly, you know, all those parties came together and agreed a carefully defined definition, and that's really important because that. That underpins everything and and it supports sort of consistency in the way we assess and understand you know what is coastal squeeze and how we can act on that mm. so this research report you know is available it's out there it's published earlier this year and it, it's been used already to improve some of our underlying data mm-hmm. and it's provided sort of further consideration and support to you know the assessors and, and the methods they use and it's being used to underpin uh, statutory habitat compensation programs you know associated Mm. with flood and coastal management activity but outside of the environment agency with some of those other organizations that i've mentioned i know that it's led to sort of updating their guidance and you know they're they're also using this to support them in their assessments
0: Mm. excellent excellent and i'm sure it's you know it's information and research that is relevant and will be useful for other geographies and we'll touch on that here in a moment but you know, accounting for differences, obviously, in climate and, you know, the, the south of England is obviously going to be very different than, say, you know, the eastern coast of India or whatnot, but uh, but there probably are some relevancies as well. Now, now, Nigel, um, regarding coastal squeeze, you know, what new developments are you seeing in your work? Like, what is your what is your work showing you that uh, you'd like to comment on?
1: I guess to put it in context, the, the term coastal squeeze, especially in the in the uk context has been you know in use since the late 1980s early 1990s and mm-hmm. it's become quite pervasive as a concept quite widespread and has been a real as chrissy has said it's become a real driver for creating compensatory habitat and what we've done in in this particular project we've taken a closer look Uh, previous definitions and methods Mm -hmm. uh, and built on about 10 years of work that we've been doing for the Environment Agency uh, around Britain and a series of journal papers and conferences. And what we've come up with is a a new definition uh, and that's one of the most important things. uh, And there's there's a number of differences between that definition and earlier definitions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll just pull out three important differences just to briefly talk about here. Firstly, our new definition includes a range of coastal structures and management activities and explains how they can cause coastal squeeze. And that's different because in the past, the focus was on flood defences alone. And we've shown that other structures, such as railway embankments or key walls, could have similar effects or even management activities in, in some instances. A second important difference is we've shown that this. Idea of coastal squeeze that habitats are lost by a combination of sea level interacting with a man made structure, then that process can affect a range of habitats. And in the past, we tended to think of just salt marsh and mudflat habitats being affected. But what we've shown in this work is that this can affect a range of other habitats. We list a further eight types of habitat, including beaches, sand dunes, and lagoons on the coast. And that's a real uh you know it's a real step forward to clarify that make it clear and then mm. the third thing i wanted to draw out was uh, this definition for the first time consistently includes some terms relating to habitat quality in the past we were just concerned about losses of areas of habitat here mm. for the first time we we bring in the quality of those habitats as well so there's just three main differences that are sort of subtle technical details, but that's really important Mm -hmm. because these definitions go on to drive our requirement to to generate compensation for the losses.
0: Mm. So if I understand correctly, so the reason the definitions are important is because then it helps you determine like where coastal squeeze is occurring such that it actually requires action. And then maybe um, I'm assuming being able to designate an area is undergoing coastal squeeze then you can you can drive funding and research and attention for that you know so it's it's just making sure everybody gets on the same page you know so it's like we've got to take care of this the beach here at you know x y and z because it's clearly within falls within the range that we've defined is that is that kind of why these definitions are so important
1: Absolutely, just as you say, it's really important for agreeing, you know, the causes of loss and then mm-hmm. what should be done to uh, compensate for those losses. So, you know, the, these sorts of uh, investigations are very technical, mm-hmm. but they ultimately they lead to, you know, projects creating new areas of habitat, and those projects are expensive. You know, they typically can cost they cost millions of pounds. Uh, mm-hmm. One I'll decide described later cost 20 million pounds. Mm. And uh, so you want to be sure that you're providing the correct compensation for the correct type of losses. So mm. uh, this detailed technical work underpins that.
0: Mm. Excellent. Now you mentioned salt marshes and in some other habitats that, uh, it sounds like those were kind of the preliminary ones that were getting attention, but then the definition is expanding to look at, at others are, are some habitats or geographies at greater risk than others. I can answer part of that question, at least that. Definitely
1: some geographies Mm -hmm. uh, are sort of higher risk areas. I mean, there's some underlying requirements for coastal squeeze to to occur. You Mm -hmm. need to have sea level rise. You need to have uh, some sort of uh, man-made structure or activity that's preventing your habitats moving. If you've got those things in play, coastal Mm -hmm. squeeze is a risk. And furthermore, in areas with more rapid rates of sea level rise, or areas with lower sediment supply, so less availability of sands and muds and gravels that mm-hmm. help nourish those habitats along our coast. We have those two things, high sea level rise, low amount of sediment. Mm-hmm. then your habitats are more vulnerable to change and more vulnerable to coastal squeeze. Mm-hmm. And at least in the UK, mm-hmm. as Chrissy alluded to earlier, those types of conditions tend to be more prevalent on our, on the south coast of Britain and the southeast coast. And around the world, there'll be areas which have higher rates of sea level rise mm-hmm. uh, and lower uh, sediments supply. And it's those areas that are most vulnerable to coastal squeeze. Mm. And the the other part of your question was, Mm. are certain habitats more vulnerable? I guess the honest answer right now is we don't know. There are about 10 or so types of habitat in England and Wales that are potentially vulnerable to change. And Mm. I don't have an an idea of the different vulnerability of the different habitats at this stage.
0: Mm. So maybe as our technology continues to advance and we're able to detect with a greater uh refinement of sensitivities on the data and like what the the various dynamics at play maybe those uh those will become even more self-evident you know like the degree to which the the risk is uh is present
1: yeah i think that i mean that's a good point and it reminds me to say that you know we do these scientific studies but the real proof comes from collecting data and Mm -hmm. monitoring the data Mm -hmm. so this report clarifies some of the underpinning science, some of the causes, some of the things to look for, and going forward, that's what we in this country and others elsewhere in the world will be doing, monitoring and seeing if these changes are being realized.
0: Mm, that's interesting, and and I imagine there's like in the scientific community, there is some like data exchanging and uh, conferencing and you know sharing knowledge across the different the different geographies, you know, this is what we're hearing, or this is what we're seeing in Asia versus this is what we're seeing in Northern Europe or the Caribbean or whatnot, you know. But uh, that's fascinating. So, what are some of the things that Jacobs and the UK Environment Agency are specifically doing to counteract coastal squeeze?
2: Well. I mean, I'll let Nigel explain some of the the specifics in a minute. But um, mm-hmm. you know, in broad terms, we're we're basically looking to use the best of the expertise that we have uh, across many organisations and and work truly in partnership here. You know, this is this is a challenge, and and you know there are answers, but as you can tell from what we've been discussing, that it, it's not easy, and it's really important to have this good sort of evidence base to carry out these assessments and and back up the, you know, the decisions that are being made. So we've got to look at, we've got to look at, you know, how we're considering a a sort of cost effective planning uh, along the coast. And we've really got to have an eye on recognizing opportunities for adaptation and think about long-term resilience, you know, this, how, how we're going to manage these coasts uh, in light of this sort of changing climate. Mm -hmm. We've got, we've got some good structure here. Uh, We've got, the environment bill and the 25year environment plan that's, that supports us here in England and as those alongside habitat regulations really set the, the, the principles and the direction for what we're doing and I guess from a, a, an environment agency perspective you know we've got shoreline management plans which which break the country down and and look at how we're managing you know those shorelines and and we've also got habitat plans and you know we look to commission work that such as uh, realignment schemes where we we used to sort of shift the coastline you know those have been ongoing for quite a number of years now so you know we're already taking action to address this situation and look at it it's just that we're learning more and more and we're getting some clear good evidence to support the ways we do this Mm -hmm. and I guess really ultimately you know, we're trying to provide this sort of national overview and there's a group that we have called the Habitat Compensation and Restoration Programme mm-hmm. that sort of takes in all this information from these various locations and really looks to consider those projected losses and consider compensatory habitat across across the national picture. So that's just some of the things we're doing to look at coastal squeeze on, on a broad context. But I'll pass you over to Nigel now to sort of detail some of the specifics.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so, Nigel, just again, the question is, what are some of the things that Jacobs and the UK Environment Agency are specifically doing to counteract coastal squeeze?
1: I mean, as Christy says, the Environment Agency has taken a lead role in the UK in identifying and offsetting the impacts of coastal squeeze through some of the long-term planning studies uh, mm-hmm. that they do coordinate called these shoreline management plans but also through the, you know, uh, projects on the ground to create replacement habitats. And Jacobs is one of the main suppliers uh, of coastal services to the Environment Agency, covering all of these aspects of work. And so, you know, for for my part, a significant part of my career over the last 20 or so years has been the creation of new habitats through the process of managed realignment, whereby we move a flood defence further landwards and create more space for habitat. And so one recent example that we did for the Environment Agency is the Sturt Marshes Scheme in Somerset. Mm -hmm. That project created over 400 hectares of habitat, Mm -hmm. uh, including some 250 hectares of uh, intertidal habitat. Mm -hmm. We we realigned some defences, we moved them landwards, we created some openings so that the sea can re-enter that land that was hundreds of years ago, was formerly intertidal area mm-hmm. and that scheme today which is managed by the wetlands and wildfowl trust attracts thousands of visitors each year not only humans uh, mm-hmm. but birds and other animals as well
2: mm-hmm. and
1: recent research has shown that that scheme in the first four years have, has locked away nearly 40,000 tons of carbon in its first four years so you know these schemes as well as creating uh, biodiversity benefits are creating other benefits to help uh, Offset some of our climate change impacts.
0: Hmm. Excellent, excellent. All right. So for my next question, uh, Nigel and Chrissy, I've I've got this one for both of you. And Nigel, I'm going to start with you this time. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, how do you see the coastal squeeze uh, remediation field evolving in the next three to five years?
1: I think uh, let's just put a bit of context to that. Then you know in. In Britain, perhaps in lots of other places in the world, you know, we've had a long recognition of the value of nature for nature's sake, if you you like, uh, habitats, uh, providing habitat for different species of animals and and Mm. plants. And we've been doing that for at least 50 years, if if not longer. But today we're increasingly recognising that those habitats may have additional benefits for humans. And those additional benefits are often called ecosystem services. So, for example, the benefits of spending more time in the natural environment have been recognized and demonstrated over the last couple of years for improving our general well-being. You know, that's an important thing we get out of the natural environment. In the correct settings, creating additional coastal habitat can help reduce flooding and erosion on our coast. The habitats themselves form natural flood defences. And and then a particularly topical one at the, the present time is that coastal habitats such as salt marshes are important stores of carbon they remove huge quantities of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere each year and bury it within sediments so these habitats can perform multiple functions and in the future with increasing rates of sea level rise these coastal habitats may be at risk of loss due to coastal squeeze and and other forcing factors so you know what we've learned from this project is that causes of coastal habitat loss are many and varied. In the past, maybe coastal squeeze has been used a little bit as an umbrella term and used to cover multiple causes. But regardless of that, the methods we've developed in this project allow these various causes to be teased out and understanding those causes is the first step in choosing the best way to manage our coastal habitats. And so I think in the next three to five years, I think we'll become even more interested in conserving and enhancing, and recreating coastal habitats for a variety of reasons: for nature itself, for climate mitigation, and for climate adaptation as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. And then, Chrissy, how do you see uh, the coastal squeeze remediation field evolving in the next three to five years?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess from you know government perspective, the in- overriding ambition for of the Environment Agency is to leave the environment in a better place. And, you know, that, that translates to this as well. So in relation to coastal squeeze, I'm hoping our listeners agree that this we're looking to drive the, the sort of restoration of the natural environment rather than continually compensate for it. So it's important that we still, you know, have these habitats and that, but we're really we've got to look at, you know, how we can best improve the natural environment. And and Nigel's done a really good job there of of sort of mentioning a a very clear ambition of ours, which is for net zero carbon by by 2030 here in the UK. And recent research from this same joint R&D programme has looked at carbon offsetting and the importance of habitats as carbon stores. So as the pressure increases to find these sort of financially viable carbon balance alongside the needs of the, the environment and alongside increasing climatic related factors like sea level rise you know the the attention is going to be more and more focused on this sort of sort of habitats and alongside this with the the changing climate there's there's a recognition of a sort of shifting baseline here and we need to provide a really strong evidence base to support long-term resilient decisions you know while taking this non-stationarity into account we're not there yet is you know this is something we're sort of hoping to be working on in, in forthcoming years. It's worth mentioning as well that when it comes to flood management and and coastal Mm defences, we can only invest in flood and coastal infrastructure here at any of the protected sites of which there's many around the coast if there's an overriding benefit to public interest and and if we can show that the lost habitat will be otherwise compensated. So so it requires really strong local evidence to underpin these decisions. And and I see this research really helping us underpin these as we we move forward. as a result of this, watch out for further commission modelling and, and understanding of projected losses and really being able to apply this in, in those assessments. Of course, running steadily in the in the background is the need for cost-effective mitigation and compensation program that you know that's part of our regulations. And, and that's led through those things that I mentioned earlier, the shoreline management plans, habitat planning, et cetera. So that of course is still ongoing. I guess if I reflect on all that we've talked about here, one of the things that really jumps out and that we've learned over our time together is that good communication and the sharing of the good practice is fundamental. I mean, it goes across all subject matters, but Mm. engaging early and and with a really good understanding of multiple benefits, you can help like local communities to really buy into that long-term adaptation. There's some difficult choices here. And Mm. it's really important that the community comes along with us and, We've got a med uh, scheme here, a Medmerry scheme that showcases how the scheme can not only benefit the local community through improving the flood risk, but also gave the land back to nature. And that's that's really carefully chosen words there. You know, when we talk about giving the land back to the sea, mm-hmm. people worry. They they see it as loss, but actually, you know, the benefits that these habitats provide and the, and the, the changes to the land. It, it can provide really strong well-being, and both to people and to the, those that populate the habitats. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, in summary to your, to your question, let's come back to that. Um, coastal squeeze is just one part of the question. It's you know how. Mm-hmm. What we're really trying to do is how do you best manage our coast? And mm-hmm. over the next sort of three to five years, we expect that nature-based solutions, you know, including restoration, will be a part of that long-term resilience strategy. Working in partnership and finding cost effective solutions is going to be absolutely key and it will be important to be consistent in our approaches, which is what this research really you know, helps us with, as well as remain, remaining compliant with our regulations here. And the ultimate aim is what I mentioned right at the beginning of this, which is we need to leave our coastal environment in a better place.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because as, as you were talking, it, it made me think uh, it's analogous, I think in some ways to like the, uh, to soil erosion, right. You know, soil erosion is a very, a very onerous problem worldwide, you know, and our farming practices have like really depleted so many of the nutrients and the microbiomes in the soil to where now we're really having to change in very, maybe not radical ways, but very, we're having to change our farming practices to ensure that the soil stays nutrient rich. So it's an investment in the future. And I I see like with coastal squeeze and what you're saying about habitat preservation, this idea of giving back to the sea, it's not just nature for nature's sake, but it's helping, I think, I am assuming helping populations who live in those areas understand, look, you need to invest in your future. This ensures that this, you know, state remains viable for the long term. You know, you can't just use a resource and use it and use it and not carefully management or else, you know, at some point it runs out, right? And so it's very, very fascinating. Well, Chrissy and Nigel, I really appreciate y'all sitting down with me and talking about coastal squeeze and, you know, what it is and what we're doing to mitigate that. And uh, I think it's really fascinating the idea of being able to, to move and, the habitats to, to new areas and create additional habitats to, uh, to offset coastal squeeze. So uh, I want to thank you both for sharing your expertise and your time today.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Paul.